Oh man, I am. Me and names are not not happy fellows. And welcome to Marxism Today. I am one of your co-hosts, Red Wagner, and I am joined by your other co-host, Tony Schmidt. And today, what I want to start with is a follow-up to our Amazon episode. We did an episode on Amazon and how it functions as a really good example of the best and the worst parts of capitalism. If you want to, you can check that episode out now. We'll wait. Not really. You need to pause. That's, (laughs) I guess, that's how podcasts work. One hour silence. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) One hour of silence while you listen to that. Okay, so now if you decided to listen to that, you're back. And uh, even if you haven't, it's fine because we just have a small follow-up to that. Recently... Amazon has introduced a non-compete agreement that their employees must sign. Now, what is a non-compete agreement? Not their employees, their contractors. Thank you. That's actually much worse because most of the folks that work for Amazon are not their direct employees. They are contracted workers, which... I think is a nice strategy for Amazon to maximize their exploitation because it adds a layer in between them and their employees that they can use for legal reasons to kind of get out of things. Lots of companies love to do that these days because there's no requirement then for benefits. There's no requirement for vacation or things like that. Depending on how it works, like with, I think Uber works this way and other services like that, they don't have to pay a minimum wage either. So Mm -hmm. it really is just a sort of get out of any legal labor law card. As a footnote, I've heard that there is a class action suit or some sort of lawsuit, I assume class action, against Uber because the workers claim that they are workers for Uber which makes sense to me, but we'll see what the courts decide. Anyway, for Amazon, they have introduced a non-compete agreement for their contracted workers or just their workers in general. And this is for 18 months, which is a really long time, a year and a half. Let's define what non-compete is. Non-compete is an agreement the worker signs. To say that they will not leave that job and work for a competitor for a certain amount of time after having left their work with Amazon. In this case, 18 months. It's pretty common in professional jobs, like if you're a computer programmer, uh, like in Silicon Valley or something like that, they will you know, say, well, you can't go work for a competitor for a year. The Mm -hmm. idea being is that, say, you were working for, like, Google, 
and you were working on some advanced new algorithm they were hoping to roll out and stuff, while the other competitor can't buy you with a bigger thing, you bring your knowledge and expertise over there of what Google was doing, and you roll it out and either directly compete or just beat them to it and preempt them. Right, yeah, you couldn't quit Google a month before the new release came out, go work for Yahoo and beat them to the punch. What's interesting to me about non-compete in general, though, is that this is a tool that is used, and maybe maybe I'm wrong here, I would love actually to hear about uh, any stories to the contrary so if anyone knows please contact us on our wordpress or reddit or or however you like to get in touch with us non-compete are used exclusively to restrict workers what you're doing is putting a massive restriction on the worker and remember the reason that people are workers is because they have no other way to make their living than by selling their labor so by making someone sign a non-compete you are forcing them to give up their livelihood for a certain amount of time. But time is also much more limited for an individual than it is for a corporation. Corporation lives forever, unless it goes under. But a person has a limited amount of time on this earth. And so you have to give up your livelihood, which you need for shelter and food and all of these things that you need require for survival as a human being. And you have to give up a certain amount of time, which you are also limited in for that. What yeah. I'd love to see is a situation where a non-compete could work. You know, if, if it were to be an equal playing field, you know, if you were on par with your employer, the non-compete would say that you can't go work for another company that works in the same industry for 18 months and your employer would not be able to replace your position for 18 months after you left. That would be equal. Yeah, but, but that second part is never there. They'd use it then to just justify attrition to shut down the workforce and overwork their <laughs> oh. employees. Yeah, I mean, if they could, that's exactly what would happen. But the, I guess the takeaway is that the, the and I mean, maybe that just highlights the issue to an even greater degree. The issue, of course, being that the employer has much more power in this particular relationship than the employee. The capitalist system loves to brag about how the employee is free, because unlike slavery or feudalism, you can choose which members of the ruling class you want to support with your labor. That's, <laughs> not, that's not a choice that you were given in any other exploitative system that a mankind has ever invented up until capitalism only capitalism gives you the freedom to choose which members of the ruling class you want to support with your labor yeah choose your master that's right um i will also make a small the amazon is not the only one who does this with like wage jobs uh, jimmy johns also has a non-compete oh, agreement for that. their workers uh, and I mean, part of the really insidious part about this is like you said with the cutting out people's livelihood, like somebody who works in factory and a warehouse, they probably have warehouse experience. So the job that's going to be easiest for them to get 
and that they're going to have the most experience towards is that. Likewise, somebody who works in a sandwich shop, if they're looking for a similar wage job, they're going to look for another sandwich shop because it's what they have experience in. Yeah. So it really, really hurts the worker. Yeah, the way the economy is structured right now, the idea that the worker can just go out and find another job in an industry that they haven't worked in before or haven't currently been working in, I'm sure it happens. I'm, I bet we could find many, many examples of where it does happen. But the percentage of time that it happens has got to be decreasing. You know, everybody wants you to have experience. Now, okay, then you can find examples where not everybody does, but that's, that's one of the biggest requirements for employment is do you have experience in this industry? And maybe it's not a requirement, but if I'm an employer, and I've got two guys applying for the position, and they're roughly equal, but guess what? One of them has experience in the industry. No-brainer. Yeah. I'm going to choose the person with experience. So to put a non-compete is limiting your ability to use your experience in your next job position. But the employer in no way limits their ability to remove you as an employee and to replace you with another person. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. What I love about it is that it highlights how, this is a quote for Marx that I, I've heard cited a few times, and I think China Mieville, he's a children's author and also a Marxist academic. Yeah, I recommend it. He, I have one of his books, one of his children's books. It's, it's actually a really cool one if you want to borrow it. But. He wrote a book called Between Equal Rights, which which is the beginning of a quote from Karl Marx that says, Between Equal Rights, Force Decides. Mm. Which is saying, in the capitalist world, on paper, if we look at the legal rights, often they are equal on paper. Both the employer can fire you and you can choose to quit. Either one of you can end the contract at whatever time you like. However, when there is a power discrepancy between you and the employer, you're able to enforce extra qualifiers that put you in a position of power, even more so than you already were. So, for example, the employer has more power than you. And so the employer can force you to sign a non-compete or to agree to work for less or whatever. They can kind of push you into a situation that favors them because they know that you are more desperate for a job than they are for a worker 95% of the time. Yeah. Okay, next topic... I came across this story. The article is titled, Egyptian woman dresses for man for more than 40 years to provide by family. And what it is, is uh, an Egyptian lady, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce because I will butcher it. Her husband died, she's 65, her husband died about 40 years ago, and she had kids. So in order to avoid getting harassed while trying to find a job and make it easier, she's been dressing like a man. And she recently got an award from the Egyptian president. She was awarded the Woman Breadwinner Award 
by the president and praising her as being an exemplary working woman. Just the fact that she, one, would have to dress up like a man to get a job does a lot there. Mm -hmm. The fact that they're like, oh, look at you, go-getter, doing what you can to provide for your family, even though how ridiculous this is. Let's celebrate the absurdity of this and give you an award. It makes me think of Darlene... I boy, I cannot pronounce that name. Too many names I cannot pronounce. You want to give a shot at that pronunciation? Stakhanov? Sure. Uh, yeah, so it makes me think of that guy who was the Stalin's model worker. The I think he was a coal miner who, I don't know if he actually decided to work harder than everybody else and they picked up on that or whatnot. Either way, he was used as propaganda as a good hard-working Soviet in what every worker should aspire to. You'd hope that the the real Stakhanov was actually a good worker because Russia is such a huge country that they had a lot of people to pick from. They, I, I mean, out of the entire country, I hope they found one guy that actually did work very hard. Otherwise, they were just being lazy about it. Yeah, because at the time of the October Revolution, I think they had 150 million people which is half the present size of the United States. So, yeah, you'd have got to find one person who was really like, hell yeah, Soviet Union, I'm going to work my ass off for this. Well, yeah, I think it's the degree to which you work hard. There's many things that influence that, that, that can cause you to work harder or less hard. But I think one of the most important factors in that decision is just kind of who you are. Like, how you grew up and what you learned to be. Yeah. And there's just going to be somebody that works very, very hard. Should we talk a little bit about... We mentioned the name and then kind of went into it, that it was Stalin's kind of ideal worker. must admit I don't know a ton other than I know he was sort of just the poster boy for what they wanted everybody to work like. And I think they had posters that are like, work like... Sh- however we decided to pronounce that name okay let's save this for later because i think that he was also the stalinist basis for introducing some capitalist reforms that stalin did at least according to trotsky um but we'll see i don't know all right yeah i gotta reread that because that was years ago what's interesting to me about this i mean i think there's two things that we need to talk about one is that Instead of doing something about the rampant, like, if if the sexism in your country is so bad that a woman pretends to be a man to support her family, that is a signal of something being very, very wrong. And probably that woman does deserve an award of some sort, but also, your country needs to change. You need to do something about that. Well, to be fair, Egypt has been trying to change. Yeah. It's the two-step forward, four steps back sort of thing. Well, and and speaking of that, because I don't want to just bash on Egypt here, we have some major problems with sexism in the U.S. as well. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the and, and there's lots of different ways to slice and dice the numbers, but women make somewhere between 70 cents or 85 cents per dollar a man makes, depending on exactly how you compare it it is 78 cents we're sorry we're just talking about this in class 78 cents on the dollar 
And if you control for all sorts of other factors, like trying to mitigate other this and that's, it's still 93 cents on the dollar. So even trying to control for different factors, it's still 7 cents less. Okay. So most Wonderful. favorably, it's only 93 cents. Yeah, even even if you yeah account for every little thing, which some of those things, like the fact that women need time off to give birth to a child if they want to have a child, like... I'm not sure that it's fair totally to control for that because that's just how biology is. Like, that's not someone's choice if they want to have a child. You know, if, if you're a male and want to have a child, that's not something that you're away for necessarily. And if you're a female, then it just biologically is. The, the fact that even controlling for everything and I'm sure included in everything, there are things that probably do- should not be controlled for because they are biologically determined, not social social choices made by individuals. There's still a gap that that's already a problem. Yeah, that's why I think the 78 cents is a good number to use for that. But I just think the 93 is illustrative. So if people try and go, well, and you can go, okay, if you look at it that way, mm-hmm. it's still now. What is interesting to me, actually, after reading this article, I had a lot of respect for the woman who had done this, but at the same time, I also thought to myself, I'm kind of surprised that this just doesn't happen more often, that we don't, maybe it does, and maybe we just don't hear about it. Maybe this is the first time we've heard about it. I would love to know if there were any examples of this kind of thing happening in the U.S. Uh, In the Monty Python's The Life of Brian... When they're going to stone somebody to death, he goes with his mom who wears a fake beard. Like, and the guy's like, is there a woman here? And it's all women wearing fake beards ready to stone someone to death. <laughs> men watch. So, for our main topic today, I wanted to talk about, well, mostly around a book I recently read. It's called Decolonizing Time, Work, Leisure, and Freedom by Nicole Marie Shippen. I will start by saying I very highly recommend this book. It is really expensive uh, to buy it from the publisher, which is Palgrave Macmillan. It is $105. Uh, I inadvertently ended up buying this book because I got a copy through the library, which I accidentally got water spilt on and did not notice for a while. And then I basically ruined the copy, so I ended up purchasing it, which is fine. It was a good book, so I mean, I'm not excited about the price, but I'm, it's a book I'm happy to own. And now you can lend it to friends. Exactly. Yeah, I think my copy Thad has at the moment, who is not here, because his time is being occupied with something else. I think it's family. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of a transition. It's... Yeah. The whole point about the book is about how capitalism has, well, she puts a colonized time. I think that's a good way of putting it. It's that what you do with your time is basically structured all around capitalism. When you have free time, it's you're not basically doing whatever. It's just sort of the times in between when you're working or... Like, a lot of what we do with our free time is consume things. So it's engaging more in the capitalist system. 
And one of her things that she's arguing for is that we need not want free time. We want leisure time. We want, as humans, it, idealistically, we should have, and she goes to Aristotle's version of uh, leisure, which is the idea of just sort of having the ability to control your time in a meaningful way so that I can go and do what I want and not have to worry about losing my job because I decided to take a weekend off and go camping or hiking or I'd never do those things, but you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's an important distinction. One of the things that I think Shippen is most uh, concerned about is this distinction between free time and discretionary time or leisure time. And and I think you were you were hitting on this a little bit uh just now. But just to make clear that for this discussion the the distinction is that free time is time that you don't have to work. Which I think that you know what it makes me think of is the eight hour day slogan. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen this on old banners for the eight hour day? No. It is uh eight hours for work. Eight hours for sleep and eight hours for what we will. Okay. Which it, it was the old, old slogan for when the workday was legally ten hours a day and workers wanted to reduce it to eight hours a day to have more time to themselves. And I remember reading that uh, when I was working basically eight hours a day and thinking, that's not how that breaks down <laughs> because... There's a big distinction between the, like, on a day where I work eight hours and sleep eight hours, there's not eight hours where I can just choose whatever I want to do with the rest of the time. I need to travel to work, travel back from work, I need to engage in regular hygiene, I need to prepare food and eat that food, I need to pay bills i need to do all of these things that are absolutely necessary for my survival and like normal continuance as a human being as a citizen but that are not really my choice to do yeah and i don't know about you my wife always thinks i'm silly when this comes up and it doesn't come up anymore because i have a different job but like if i would work an evening shift even if I had the whole day off, I would just feel like I couldn't do anything with my time during the day. I always be like, ah, well, I could do this. But then I just got to go to work. Like, it very much weighs upon me if I have work coming up. I don't know. I might be abnormal in that sense. I don't know. I, I don't think that's abnormal. I So I work first shift, and I basically always have. The, only, the last time I did not work first shift was like 15 years ago when I was 15 years old (laughs) or I guess 16, but whatever it like I've almost always worked first shift. And I will say this because I think the opposite is true as well, that when I am done with a first shift job by three 30 or five or whenever I get done, that you feel like there's not much you can do after that. Oh, yeah. You know, I want to eat dinner. I need to relax for a small amount of time. I need to get home from work. I need to brush my teeth before I go to bed. Like, when I add all of that up, 
you know, we we happen to have a cat, so I'll make the cat's dinner for it, and you know, the just all all of these things. Maybe there's some mail that I need to read. There's a bunch of stuff that I need to do, and then the actual amount of time that I have to do whatever I want to do with is so small, especially if I build in time to do the normal like recharge that you need to do yeah. from having worked a full day. Like there's a certain amount of time that your brain just needs to recharge to rest, to just not do anything for a little bit while it recovers. Yeah. Whether you do physical or mental labor primarily, you still it's still just people are mostly exhausted. Yeah. Either your body or your mind needs to rest or both. And, yeah, you need a certain amount of time. So, even though you may have only worked eight hours, and more and more that's getting pushed for salaried workers. I've worked salary for a while now. But even if you do have one of those wonderful days where you only work eight hours a day, at the end of the day, you don't have eight hours to choose what you want because you spent a certain amount of time in the morning after sleeping eight hours to, you know, perform regular hygiene and to get to work and, you know, to put clothes on because work wants you to be clothed and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, which I don't disagree with, but it's just, you know, you got to figure that into the equation. And, too, to throw in as a parent, if you have kids, then that amount of time gets cut even more because you need to do all that stuff for your kids particularly if they're too young or too obstinate to do it themselves and just like you know engaging with them too like i think on, i i don't know what i'd say for average amount of time a day i get to actually do what i want but from not having kids to having kids it is i probably have about a fifth of the amount of time to actually do what i want yeah and with the new baby coming it will be no time literally no time i'll have no time to do things. Yeah. Should I be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, at least you'll know what you're doing with every moment of your life. Yeah, but at least... It's yeah. the things you have to do. Yeah, But for children, I mean, that's a free choice you get to make with children. Like, I'm not having kids for uh, reproduction. I'm not reproducing the human species for reproduction of labor. Although, they will be able to help out, but... Yeah, I mean... It's a choice for an individual basis, but as a society, it needs to happen. No no society can survive that does not produce children and, and bring them up to be the next generation. Yeah. That's that's an interesting thing that we do as a nation, um, or maybe I should say that we don't do as a nation. Uh, like when we learn about all the different things that are done in Europe to help with with child rearing, you know, uh, a school stipend and for clothes and, you know, all sorts of things, a daycare stipend for certain, uh, countries or free daycare. I think France does free government sponsored daycare. Yeah. If you're poor enough, you can get some sort of subsidy for child care, but I don't think it covers all. I mean, this is in the United States. I don't think it covers all and child care is expensive like my wife and i for i guess since we've had kids have both been working part-time because childcare is so expensive it's actually cheaper for us to both work part-time 
uh, and just watch our kid, or soon be kids, uh, just in between that than it is to one of us get a full-time job, work full-time, and pay for daycare. Mm-hmm. It is, it's that expensive. I mean, I think, like, it can be like $300 a week or something like that. It's, it's just, it's astro, I mean, it's more than you pay for rent, something a lot of cases it's just ridiculous it's mm-hmm. it's really just untenable yeah another uh couple friend who i'm friends with um the wife has a master's degree and had uh you know what you'd call a career job or whatever salaries and all that and it turned out that when their daycare solution was not such a great solution that they, they had to stop using their daycare for reasons i won't get into but they had to the the best solution for them was for her to to quit her job and stay home because it just worked out economically. It wasn't quite as good as what they were paying for, but they couldn't keep doing that. So, the, you know, by far the most expedient and pretty, and it was close to a wash, honestly, the the amount for daycare versus her working. So I think you get to spend time with your kids too. Like that's another yeah. big thing that I think it's. Well, maybe it doesn't always get left out of that, but you know, like actually seeing your kids, uh, like I, I consider that pretty important these days. Is like uh, for the summer, I'm just going to be working part time and not doing classes, so that with a new baby, I can spend time with the baby when it's little, because you know, in four or five years, he'll be off in school, so it won't matter as much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, use of time. Some of her other stuff sort of go iteratively through she, where she goes through the book. So she starts out with Aristotle, like I said, and <clears throat> or maybe I didn't say Aristotle. She starts out basically looking at Aristotle and his idea of leisure, and juxtaposes that to our what we have for free time these days. And then she moves on to Marx um, and talks about exploitation. Applying that to time is that not only are you exploited for wages, but then that is time that is stolen from you as well as money that you're working beyond what you get paid for. Yeah, because with the development of capitalism, everything is about turnover time, right? Yeah. If you can get a 5% return in a month versus 5% return in a decade, that's a huge difference. Time time makes the decision for money all the time because that's how you calculate rate of exploitation and rate of profit. It's all time-based. Yeah. You know, speaking of Marx too, another another connection to Aristotle was in Aristotle's time, the folks who had leisure time, they didn't have it inherently in and of themselves, they had it because of the slave class. Yeah, slaves and women, yeah, she goes into that, too, about how, yeah, that Aristotle acknowledged that the reason, or he thought it was natural and right, that the men had the leisure time to engage in politics and thought as it was the place of the slave and the woman to take care of all the domestic issues, to free the man up for that, which is classy Aristotle. Classist Aristotle. (laughs) (laughs) And sexist. Yeah. But, I don't know. Maybe we should give him a break. This was 2,000 years ago. Okay. I mean, maybe not, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, 
judging him by the standards of his time, yeah, Aristotle was a cool dude, but let's also include judging him by today's standards. Awful dude. Yeah, that that is something that, uh, to go on a little bit of a tangent, uh, hopefully small tangent, um, is that I vehemently reject the idea that you can't judge historical people by today's standards. I understand the importance of understanding history in its context, but I don't think there's a problem to then go, but also they they sucked. Because, like, if you look at the context of Germany in the 1940s, it's not so bad to be a Nazi. That doesn't mean you can't condemn Nazis. Like, right. it, it doesn't look, or like ancient Greece is a good exa- another good example. I don't, was it, I don't know if it was Aristotle or who, the symposium, uh, Plato? In Plato's symposium, he goes on about how it's right to have sex with boys. Because, yeah. you know, like, you can go, okay, well, for Greek society at that time, that wasn't terribly abnormal. But you can still go, that is really wrong. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like maybe you were taking advantage of someone that doesn't have the fully developed mental capacity that you do. Yes. It might have been a different time and place, but, uh, yeah, no, that, that's still, that's, that's not cool. Um, sorry. So that was my tangent. No, I agree with uh, to further your tangent. I agree. I think it needs to be both. I think it's important to understand the historical context of someone. Because to say, were they ahead of their time? Were they behind their time? That's important to know. I mean, you should get some credit for being ahead of your time, even though you're still behind our current time. Yeah. Like... That's, you know, it's two different, you got to understand there's two different measuring sticks, sticks and they're, and they're both legit in their own way. Yeah. And I, so I think it's okay to judge folks by today's standards and it's also okay to judge them by their standards of their time, but you can't discount one of them. You can't say that one's not legitimate. Yeah. Like, um, oh, I'm going to tangent too much here. Like, if you look at, like, eugenics, a lot of pre-World War II uh, socialists and communists, they were fans of eugenics. They thought that, you know, we should just get rid of people, or not allow people to breed who were, they considered inferior and whatnot. And, well, you know, then there was the Nazis, and people dropped that really quick. So it's fine to be like, well, yeah, most a lot of people, especially intellectuals, were really down with eugenics. Then, like, that doesn't mean you discount all of everything they said, but you know, you you keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, that's like, right. They they weren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty rough one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was scary, common like um. Until the right attacks Margaret Sanger a lot, the lady who founded Planned Parenthood and was a big advocate of uh, abortion rights and birth control and stuff, is that she was also eugenicists. So that's yeah, but, what they go after, which it's, yeah, that's messed up. Yeah, so it was like... Charles Walt- Lindbergh, who was a Nazi. Yeah, well... Or Walt Disney. Yeah. Well, he was kind of a Nazi, too. Yeah. But like, you know... <laughs> Yeah, it it fell all over the place. You know, before there was a genocide based on the idea, it's not that. <laughs> it didn't seem that bad. Yeah, because I don't, I don't think a lot of them were actively. They weren't actively calling for genocide. Pl- 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is the thing. And then yeah. when somebody took it to that level, they all yeah. at least publicly rethought their... Being a eugenicist and calling for genocide are two completely different things. And also, like, to be at a point of time where science had not fully understood the importance of cultural development versus genetic development at that point you know now i think we've developed to a point in science where we can recognize oh yeah culture is so much more important than genetics for the human race at this point because we reached a certain threshold in genetics where now cultural development goes so much quicker so much faster can change so quickly that the genetics portion of it pales in comparison it's not even fair to put them up against each other because culture changes so quickly compared to genetics yeah you know to get us to be the species that we are today took millions of years but the the cultural changes that have happened just in the past few decades have been massive yeah genetics just can't compete with that yeah because genetics it's, it's a slow process yeah. Although it can happen sort of on another tangent. I mean, they have observed, I think, birds in the Galapagos, like within a human's lifespan, uh, like three or four generations, they've noticed if I think it's like a, another species comes in and goes after their food source, they've noticed uh, within a few, just a couple generations, uh, genetic adaptations to go to a different food source. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it, under extreme circumstances, uh, a new species could potentially arise as quickly as like tens of thousands of years, or well, depending on how quickly the number of generations happens. Like I've heard. Yeah. That apparently there's a, like a new species of mosquito in the London subway system, uh, because like things are just different in the London subway, and mosquitoes adapted to survive down there, and now there may be a different species. But mosquitoes, a generation of mosquito is not that long. I don't yeah. know how long it is, but it's not that long compared to a human. But in general, the the number of generations it takes is still. You know, for humans, a generation is, I don't know, 15 years at the shortest and, you know. I think average is probably 30 years between generations. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think, like, at the most extreme longest, you can go up to 50, maybe. I don't know, somewhere around that. Yeah, I think but the yeah, record like is, like, probably... 60-something is the oldest lady sure. to have a baby. I mean, men can have babies up until their deathbed, I guess. Or it can sire babies but yeah like yeah somewhere around 30 is probably about right so it's like yeah 30 years for one generation and it takes at least four if not you know more than that to really make a change it's like that's a long time you know yeah. but just with science and engineering and cultural changes those can happen so much faster yeah weird sidebar sorry about that yeah Sidebars are good. I like sidebars because that's that's so 90... what we do. It's <laughs> a podcast full of sidebars. Yeah, that's ninety percent of my conversation is sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then she talks about, and I have, I'm going to, God, too many names I'm butchering today. Georg Lukas, Lukats, 
Lukacs was talking about what he called reification, which I thought was interesting. I'd sort of seen this term, but hadn't really known it. And it is him taking alienation, combining with objectification, and rationalization. So, basically, like, with capitalism, it considers everything to be calculatable, right? Like, uh, life insurance companies will say, okay, your life is worth this much money. Like, they they just sort of assume that you can calculate everything. And then what humans tend to do, I guess, is when there is a calculation to be able to be made like that, you assume it has some sort of intrinsic value. Like, there's something to that. So if you can say, well, my time is worth eight fifty an hour, you know, you're, it works into a system of rationalizing that that exploitation of time. It's like the the she talks about the work life balance, but I, economics they always talk about opportunity cost. Mm. So this makes me think of you know, our, right now instead of recording this for nothing, you or I could be theoretically out making whatever we normally make. Right, yeah, I could be mowing lawns for 20 bucks an hour right now. Yeah. Maybe. Is that all you get for mowing lawns? Probably not. I don't know. And there's still a little snow on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, no one needs their mow- lawn <laughs> mowed right now. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's that idea that we could somehow be doing something with all of our time to make more money, which I think is an incredibly pl- problematic um <laughs> thought that capitalists have with that mm-hmm. in the first place, but nonetheless, it's it's that sort of idea that you know anything you're doing with your time, there's a you know rationality and there's a value associated with it. I think is the big thing I get out of that is that there's always value with your time. And well, maybe I'll just move on to the her next point, which is about, and I think possibly the one we might want to spend the most amount of time on. Or I guess her next point was critical thoughts on leisure, but we've already sort of hit on that. So the culture industry is, I think, perhaps one of the more interesting parts about this. Mm-hmm. She starts out sort of pointing out about how in the earlier parts of capitalism up through uh, before World War Two, the idea, and we've touched on this before, is that with technology will work less. Like, humanity is ridiculously more productive than it used to be. And sudden, and it's conceivable that none of us could, we could all probably be working four hours. Have everyone employed working four hours a week, or not four hours a week, four hours a day. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe four hours a week, I don't know. But four hours a day, and, you know, we'd all be fine. We'd still have just as much crap everything but the idea is that the culture industry took off and advertising and what they did is they said well instead of working less wouldn't you like to have more and it we became a culture of consumption and heavily driven by advertising but also just this growing productivity where there's more crap and you know where there's more stuff they're only seeking more markets so it's instead of working less it's this I might make unhappy some of our the some of our listeners based on the discussion of I'm I'm gonna pull in 
kind of an underconsumptionist based argument here. Maybe you can think of it as falling rate of profit too. We'll see how well it turns out. If capital wants, the whole point of capital is you invest a certain amount of money and you buy labor and capital with it. And then you end up with more money at the end of the day after you sell the output of that labor and capital. And you do that again, and you do it again, and so you're always continuously increasing the total amount of value that you control in the form of capital. If you're going to do that, you cannot have a society that says, oh, we've invented enough technology that we can stop here. We can keep the same standard of living and increase leisure time. Because if that's what society decides to do, then not every capitalist can continually improve their total capital that they control. If you want to continue increasing the amount of capital you control, you need to increase the total amount of production and consumption. It both need to be there in order for the circuit of capital to continue. So I, I think there's a tie-in with with the ideas uh, that we talked about earlier of obviously your your rate of profit will fall if you can't uh, realize that profit through consumption but we need that as a as a cultural function same thing with investment actually uh, more and more the savings of the working class whether they be in pensions or uh, or or workplace retirement funds, 401ks sort of thing, are used as investment capital. And so we we more and more throw more money into investment and more money into consumption in order to keep the capitalist machine growing so that capitalists can keep growing the amount total amount of capital that they have. Yeah, especially with growth and leisure. Um... We've talked about it already, but she also pointed out the wages for Facebook thing. That, you know, a lot of what our leisure time is, is people go shopping, people go see a movie, you'll watch TV. All sort of, all acts of consumption uh, of one type or another, and it's consuming this culture. Uh, A lot of it, or I should say, a lot of what you're consuming is cultural stuff, like movies or music or TV. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find a time when you're not engaging in capitalist property relations, whether being part of the production cycle or being part of the consumption part of the equation. Almost anything that you want to do, like maybe you just really enjoy listening to music. That might be what you do. And if you listen to the radio, then you're exposed to uh, commercials, which I think of as capitalist propaganda. Oh yeah. I mean, maybe not. Maybe most people aren't uh, prepared to to go as far as to call commercials capitalist propaganda, but that's what I think they are. They're propaganda there that's made to make you want to consume, to spend money on a capitalist industry, to and allow it to continue producing. Yeah. And well, I think for as sophisticated as they are, it's definitely propaganda. Oh yeah, yeah. Like the. And this is, could definitely be a topic for another time, but 
what goes into advertising, the psychology, the sociology, the demographics research, it's it's crazy. People talk about propaganda in the Soviet Union. If the Soviet Union could get their hands on the science that capitalist industry has today, it it I mean, it's like uh, a cart and buggy compared to a space shuttle. Yeah. It's so it was it was a a whole idea, a whole industry that was in its infancy when the Soviet Union was trying to do it. Today the amount of psychology that is put into designing phone games to be addictive and designing fast food to, you know, make you keep coming back for more and more without providing you any nutritional value. The all of this different science that's there to just make you to manipulate you to being a obedient consumer that keeps coming back is just it's scary to think about. Oh yeah. And so much of our society has been privatized so that to do many different things, no matter what it is, like I said, listening to music, which is either listening to the radio and exposing yourself to commercials, or purchasing the music someplace, that if what you love is music, that's not inherently capitalist in any way, to love music, but if that's what you love in your heart, our society has structured itself in a way that we push you in most cases to engage in those relations. Same thing for, oh, I don't know, uh, if you like looking at different species of animal and you want to go to a zoo or you enjoy art and you want to go to a museum. Some museums are free, but some ask, ask for a payment. Uh, you know, there's all, I'm sure you can think of anything, whatever hobby you have, maybe it's playing video games, whatever it is, whatever hobby you have, there's a really good chance that capitalism has found a way to incorporate participating in that into the capitalist system. Yeah. It's pretty depressing, actually. I mean, think about it like that. Because I've been trying to think of a single thing I like to do that isn't. It's like, well, reading, well, you gotta buy books for the most part. I mean, you can't get them through libraries. Mm-hmm. I guess that's that would be the best, but they still have to purchase. Anyway. Yeah, and then she she finishes up her book with a practical sort of example of how a politics of, against that would work, and she's looking essentially at uh, housework. So she's talking, she talks about, you know, uh, paternity leave, paid maternity leave, child care. We already hit on some of these things. Uh, guaranteed basic income, she hits on in a few different spots. And I agree, would be guaranteed basic income and single-payer health would probably be the best thing to really fight against uh, this the colonization time. Because if you don't have to worry about health care, so you don't have to be tied to a job for that, and if you everybody was given uh just a minimum income so that you could survive without having to work i mean that really is that would really be the best because i mean if you look at like uh where i am right now like 
trying to go back to school part-time. I could maybe go back to school full-time, or not have to work while I'm doing this. Or, you know, any student, really. I mean, I guess if you throw paid free education, higher education there as well. Um, but, you know, just, just the idea that, or if you have a crappy job, like the idea that you could just quit and not have to necessarily find another job or find a job you like. I guess I'm getting away from the time thing. Or that you, you could just take a job with the amount of hours that would give you time that you would want would really be the big thing. I think a good a good example of sort of what I think her ideal would look like uh, is the movie Office Space. Cause does, he, does she cite that movie? She does not cite that movie. But in my mind, the... Because if you haven't seen the movie Office Space, um, go get it and watch it. We'll wait. Yeah, we'll I wait. I mean, you have to pause the podcast again. <laughs> Nope, no pausing again. This will be a two-hour wait. A two-hour two-hour silence. silence. Yep. Um, and welcome back from watching Office Space now. <laughs> but you know, there. If you haven't seen it, he—it's a guy who gets really stressed by work, and his girlfriend takes him to a hypnotist. Is that what you call them? I don't actually remember that part of the movie. Oh well, he gets hypnotized in the beginning of the movie. To not let work stress him or bother him or weigh on his mind. And the hypnotist has a heart attack. Like, right after he does his countdown for letting it go. Because he's supposed to be, then I snap my fingers. Uh-huh. And the guy has a heart attack. So, like, then he's basically just mentally freed from the stresses of work. And what does he do? He you know, shows up occasionally to work. Doesn't really care that he's late. Doesn't care how he dresses. We'll just go out and do whatever, like, you know, he just goes fishing, you know, goes on dates, lady, and, you know, like, I think that's sort of the ideal, is that you just, work is just sort of something that's there that you do sometimes, and the rest in your life is focused around leisure activities. It's focused around doing what you enjoy and what you want to do, and you deciding, you governing when your work is, and not your work governing when you do that yeah it's kind of a utopian vision where work becomes a element of your free development as a human being yeah where you choose to do work because it's one of the things that you want to do in order to expand your abilities and and make meaning of your life and I think that maybe even as short as a hundred years ago, that would have been a utopian idea. More and more, we're getting closer and closer to that being not only a possibility, but an important possibility to consider. One that where you know, I think we've talked about this before in, in the context of with more and more automation, we have to structure society in a way where we're not so dependent upon the idea of wage labor and, and time spent working to uh, provide the necessities for people. Because if we get, if we're too stuck to that idea, 
it will prevent us from moving into the next phase of humanity. Yeah. And uh, Paul Lafargue, speaking of names I can't pronounce right, uh, Marx's son-in-law has a, a pretty good short, I don't know if it's a book or an essay, I'd probably call it more of an essay called The Right to be Lazy, where he makes yeah, the argument that with capitalism being so productive, there's no reason that we all have to be fully engaged in work, that we all should be able to be lazy if we want to, because we produce vastly. And he was writing 100, 150 years ago. Then, you know, he could see the basic work, end of work in sight, and we've increased productivity a thousandfold by that since then. I think an important part of the discussion is also to talk about the the term lazy because i think that can come off as a particularly negative term yeah but like when when i think of lazy i think of like watching tv or doing something completely useless is what i think of but a lot of that i think comes from the fact that we spend so much time working that our recovery time is by necessity a useless time that the way we recover from work must be a time spent doing something fairly unproductive maybe that's not even the right term but doing something that that has not just no monetary value but also no intrinsic value whereas i think with a more liberated human race the right to be lazy is not really lazy in the same sense that we think of it. It's lazy in the sense that you have time for self-directed activity. Yeah. You know, I think, well, to, to make the point, I think in a stronger way would maybe be to talk about, go back to Aristotle. Mm-hmm. If we look at the Greeks, it's a whole society built on the exploitation of slaves, but that society also invented ideas of democracy that still inspire us today, as well as other philosophical ideas that, from Aristotle and Plato that we still reference today. Great works of art that you can, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad are still inspiring stories that entertain us to this day. And these are all things that are things that you can't do without leisure time, without th- time to think and do something that's not just the reproduction of the species. And again, built on a slave society, so we need to keep that in mind. We can't glorify this, you know, without forgetting that portion of it. But now we're getting to the point in society where we don't need a lower class of slaves to provide an amount of free time to all of humanity to do the things that the ruling class of ancient Greece had time to do, come up with new political forms that are better, more equal, more create better decisions, to come up with great works of art. These are wonderful things that humanity has achieved at great costs in the past, but we're more and more we're coming up to a point where those costs are no longer necessary. So yeah, so those are some of our thoughts about time and colonization of time and all the 
bag of things that comes with that. Um, but what are you guys' thoughts on time, colonization of time? Where do you feel it acutely, or, or do you? Do you not really notice it at all? Is it? Have you found a way to work around the uh, the colonization of time? Because if so, uh, it really stresses me out, and I would love some coping mechanisms <laughs> if anybody can provide them. Let us know what you think, and we'll talk to you next time. Oh, why don't you work like other folks do? How can I get a job when you're holding down to? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Oh, I went to a house and I knocked on the door. The lady said, Strambum, you've been here before. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us City of magic, city of light, ensconced upon my front porch in broad daylight, long about noon, my rising time, drinking something of a potable beverage, playing my guitar, long after everybody else in the neighborhood has packed up their lunchbox and gone off down to Kaiser Aluminum to put in their shift. This enrages my neighbors. <laughs> One in particular across the road, little retired banker fella, been known to cannonball his rotundity across the road and stand there and publicly berate me for my sloth and indolence. <laughs> Why don't you get a job, he says. Some of you heard that, I'll bet. Now me being hit to the Socratic method fires back a question. Why? <laughs> Why, he says, taking it back. If you had a job, you could make three, four, five dollars an hour. I said, why? Pursuing the same tack. <laughs> said, hell, you make three, four, five dollars an hour. You could have a savings account. Save up some of that money. I said, why? He said, well, you save up enough of that money, young fella. Pretty soon you never have to work another day in your life. I said, hell, that's what I'm doing right now. Marxism Today is created by Red Wagner and Tony Schmidt and is a project of the Democratic Socialists of America, Madison, Wisconsin chapter. We are not official spokespeople of the DSA, and the views expressed in this podcast are ours. You can find us on Twitter at RedWagner2, that's the number 2, and SchmidtAJ, S-C-H-M-I-T-T-A-J. Our episodes are all available for download on our blog, marxismtoday.wordpress.com. You can also share your thoughts about this episode and others on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash marxism today all one word you can also find information about the democratic socialists of america madison chapter on our facebook page facebook.com slash dsa madison thanks for listening and we'll see you next time